Blog Talk Radio. strive to equal. Although repartee is no longer published in magazine format, editor Captain Jim Holder has now published a smaller version newsletter, still called repartee. Congratulations, Jim. A job well done, and I got mine in the mail the other day, and it was a great job. Keep them coming. We're hoping to continue broadcasting great articles as they become available by the Eastern family of employees. Now let's get the show started. Our stories range from the sounds you just heard, or better stated, from the male wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, also known as the Whisper Liner. As with all our radio broadcasts, we usually put in an Eastern commercial right about now, so 
Let's see if we can find a good Eastern commercial. I think I've got one right here that I'll slip on the turntable, and here Fly we go. Eastern Airlines, Eastern Airlines. Fly Eastern. You'll love to travel by Eastern. Where new things are happening. Eastern. Fly Eastern Airlines. From the ground up. Traveling on Eastern's easier. From the ground up. Eastern service is speedier. Fly Eastern Airlines. Eastern Airlines. As we like to tell all our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider, Blog Talk Radio. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Thursdays, and click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not yet begun. Many just call in uh, to the show on our cell number, I mean on our phone line, 213-816-1611, and listen in. And if you do it that way, you'll be able to talk with us and make a comment if you care to do so. This will put you right into the producer's board, and all you have to do is share your comments or join our discussion. Uh, and uh, just uh, also remember that when you do it and you want to make a comment, uh, press number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone, then join the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk with the host. Last week in episode five, we read stories from the early newsletters about stories like the German fighter pilot or World War II who was hired by Eastern Airlines and Rickenbacker's flying service and the DC-3, DC-2 days. Stories about the early days of Eastern's history. We decided to present favorite short stories from that book edited by your producer called The Best of Repartee, stories of heroes, triumphs and tragedies. We start today's show with this one about blind landings. I should tell you that uh, a few of these recordings have special sound effects from a choir of crows from our backyard. Uh, doing these recordings, I find much better sunlight out in the backyard on the porch for reading, but uh, they're, they're not too loud, so bear with the the sound of um, a crow or two. Here's Blind Landings. This short story appeared in the 1991 issue of Repartee. It's Arthur, Captain Tom Bartley, the title Blind Landings. When I signed on with Rickenbacker's Flying Circus in the spring of 1939, the standard minimum for low weather operation was 300 feet and one mile. However, if the situation was in any way favorable for a sneak job, very few of our captains would quit at 300 feet. Most of them had thrived on steady diet of low weather before minimums were ever established, and some had even landed in reported zero, zero weather. One of these was the late Captain Furman A. Stone, who was one of my early mentors when I was a new co-pilot in Atlanta. 
so far as I know, he was the only one who made a specialty of landing in zero-zero weather. How this came about was a story in itself, which was told to me partly by other co-pilots and partly by Furman himself. Sometime back in the early years when IFR operation was not yet established as a standard modus operandi, he had been caught with his weather down while trying to maintain visual contact below the overcast and clobbered an airplane. It was five years later when he returned to flying status. By then, IFR operation was a normal routine. As he told it to me, the flying business had gone off and left him, and he had to go back to square one and start over to teach himself how to really fly on the gauges. He fabricated a blind flying hood and flew on instruments for the major part of every trip, even in clear weather, using his co-pilot as safety observer. As his skills improved, he developed a formula to figure the time in seconds from over the range on initial approach to over the range on final, and from there to the touchdown point. One day, as he told it to me, his co-pilot said, I believe you could take it all the way down to the ground on the gauges. They tried it, and he could, and he did. After that, he regularly made landings and reported zero-zero weather. How many such landings he made altogether, I never knew. One co-pilot told me that the total was over 20 in just one season, in the final year before minimums were established. That figure may seem a bit high, but if he flew the Piedmont or the Gulf Coast at night in the wintertime, it just might be about right. I don't think Furman ever kept account. All he ever told me was there was no such thing as a complete blind landing. You will always see something before you touch down. While serving my co-pilot apprenticeship with Uncle Furman and other superior low weather operators, I decided to apply myself diligently to acquire the necessary skills to become a zero-zero pilot myself. In fact, I thought that within a few years we would all be making blind landings. Of course, it didn't work out that way. Progress was tediously slow. The approach light pattern, which we now have, was eventually developed along with the stroboscopic flashers. Also, the ILS replaced the low-frequency range as a final approach landing aid. Then we got the zero reader, actually a modified semi-zero reader on the eastern airplanes. With these improvements, the minimums went from 300 to 1 to 201 half, and there they stayed for perhaps 15 years, maybe longer. The major hurdle remaining to be surmounted, of course, was guidance for the landing flare and for the rollout far more critical on the larger airplanes with the faster landing speeds. We were stymied at the point where, in the words of highly esteemed one and only J.J. Smith, we had the capability to crack it up on the runway. Actually, with a bit of luck, one might, in an emergency situation, be able to make a reasonably good zero-zero landing and get away with it. 
The late Captain Trevor Kenyon did just that one night in the late 1950s, if my memory serves me right. He was flying an L-1049 Super G Constellation, due to land at Houston and then at San Antonio. Well, Houston went to zero just before he arrived, and he overflew to San Antonio, which also collapsed just before he got there. The only place remaining open in the whole southwest was Austin, which still had minimums, but before he could land there, it too went to zero. So he put it into Austin on the ILS and made a safe landing. Maybe he got off the runway before the end of the landing roll. I'm not sure now at this late date, but it was still an excellent performance, due principally to a high degree of skill with maybe just a touch of good luck thrown in. Of course, it was also an ultimate capability performance for the state of the art at that time. For routine operations, we were still tied to 200 and a half. As Captain Bob Buck of TWA expressed it in an excellent magazine article, you could fly all the way from London to New York and never look out the window until you got to the last 200 feet. Then you were right back with the Wright brothers. Meanwhile, the electronic engineers were working diligently to come up with a solution, using the autopilot all the way. First, they developed the coupler approach, which was a big stride forward, but it did not solve the problem of the landing flare. I tried several times experimentally to let the airplane fly and land itself out of the coupler approach, but there was no ground cushion effect at all. I always had to disconnect the autopilot and flare manually. We still lacked a reliable radio altimeter tied to the autopilot to partially flare the airplane before contact. That's where we stood when the obnoxious age 60 regulation terminated my flying career in January of 1967. The landing minimum was still 201.5, with only one improvement. We could land with an RVR of 2,600 feet and a decision height of 200 feet, but the decision depended on what the pilot could see and not what was printed on a teletype strip. Thus, in my total of 27 and a half years with Eastern Airlines, our landing minimums had been lowered by mere 100 feet of ceiling and one half of a mile of visibility. After that, things moved a little faster. I don't know the step-by-step -step development, but by my wife and I, but my wife and I flew to Germany on KLM in 1984 and to England in Del on Delta in 1986. And in each case, they had a Cat 3 capability, although I did not have a chance to see it demonstrated as the weather was clear both times. Of course, the Cat 3 capability was with the autopilot all the way, with backup all the pilots and computers for redundant safety. At this writing, August 1991, at least one airline, Alaska Airlines, has a Cat 3 capability with the airplane flown manually using a heads-up display of the landing data. And so, long at last, we are back up to the level where Uncle Furman was in the early 1930s. Only this time, it's not art, it's science, and it's routine. 
It's a quantum step forward, which had been a long time coming. Thank you. That was from Captain Tom Bartley. You know, I can recall when I was a new co-pilot. Now, this is Neil speaking, not, not Tom's story. But I can recall when I was a new co-pilot like Tom, flying with a captain with these same skills into Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That was back in 1963. It was a low-range approach and down to minimums on the final approach leg. The captain said, Neil, I'm going to keep it going down if you are at minimums. If we are at minimums and you can keep your eyes glued outside. When you see a highway perpendicular to our bearing, let me know. You should then see almost immediately a red barn. The runway will be straight ahead and we'll land. Yes, sir, I replied, not knowing what to expect. Yes, he was one of those captains out of the Captain Stone mold of low-weather pilots. I must say I was a little shaky, but we taxied to the passenger ramp. We were the only aircraft to arrive that morning into Lancaster. Allegheny had missed as well as a couple of other flights. And I also recall call flying the A300 some years later. I recall flying an A300 Airbus with my wife in the jump seat into the Los Angeles uh, airport one night when the Pacific Sea Fog had rolled into the airport with zero, zero conditions. She got to see what I did for a living and what a Cat 3 landing looked like. One centerline light after another as the aircraft landed itself, braked itself, and came to a stop in the center of 27 right at LAX. I had gone full cycle flying in the early days of sneaking a peak as that captain going into Lancaster did and a little more. Yes, sir. Eastern Airlines was a most unique company. Captain Jim Holder, before he became editor of Repartee, sent in this story for the magazine. This is our next one. I also used it in my book, The Wings of Many, which he allowed me to use. And Jim, if you're listening, which I know you are, because I see you on my board, and we'll be talking with you in just a few minutes, I hope I don't screw this up. So enjoy your story, Jim, as I'm sure others will. It's called The Gooseneck Oiler. This story is titled The Gooseneck Oiler by Captain Jim Holder. One unusually hot April day in 1965, we finished our layover in Raleigh-Durham and showed up at the airport about noon. As I was a pilot engineer on the Electra, it was my immediate job to go to the plane and get it cool for the captain. As those who have flown her know, that does not take much skill. As the close to full load of passengers were boarding for the short flight up to Newark, I commenced my walk around. All appeared fine except I found the number two engine was low on prop oil. Now, this was not good. About the only thing I recall from the engine portion of the ground school was that we did not want to run out of that stuff. 
By this time, Captain Chuck Alton and First Officer Bob Cook had seated themselves in the nicely cool cockpit and were awaiting our departure. So when I showed up and announced what I had discovered, Chuck calmly told me to add some oil. Knowing that Raleigh at that time did not have mechanics, I asked how in the world I could do that. He said, try getting a ladder for starters. I then whined that I did not know how, and besides the special tool to put in uh, it in through the hub, surely was not on the airport anywhere. He then told me to take off the filler plug under the cow. I knew I was in trouble then, as clearly the captain knew about the double-secret auxiliary method of adding prop oil. I then allowed as how I did not have the license to do it. Again, he gently told me to get to work. I then firmly said it was just too hot outside. After what he then said, I went looking for a ladder. Well, 20 minutes later, I'm up on a rickety ladder with my entire toolkit, gloves, short slot screwdriver, and a little crescent wrench. With the baggy boys holding the ladder, I commenced to open the cow. All the while, half the passengers were watching me out the windows on the left side of the airplane. To say that I was nervous is an understatement. After getting the cow open, I used the screwdriver to break off the safety wire and then attacked the filler plug with the miniature wrench. Immediately, it slipped out off the nut end and went clickety-clacking down into the innards of the engine, wires, hoses, and greasy places. Down off the ladder I went, and not too soon, the entire engine was available for viewing. The wrench was on the bottom of the cowl and fell out onto the concrete as it opened, easily the best thing that happened the entire trip. I seriously doubted I could ever get this thing put back together again. Up on the ladder again, and this time not only all the well-delayed passengers had found a way to stare at me, but I could see the captain leaning around, looking back, and probably wondering what he had done to deserve me on this trip. After I got the plug out, the boys below passed me up a 1934 Texaco gooseneck oiler. This had about eight quarts in it, ready to go into the prop oil thingy. I braced myself against the exposed engine, somehow wrapped my left leg around the ladder, grabbed one of the spark plugs, and with my remaining hand, stuck the gooseneck into the hole, then lifted it up high and pulled the trigger. Well, the oil came out of the tank as advertised and entered the gooseneck, but at that point, It split like a mountain torrent, encountering a boulder in the middle of the stream. Half went into the engine, and the other half came down my upstretched arm into and under my shirt, down my side, staying pretty much inside my pants, and pooling into my right shoe. I was concerned that it would overflow and make a mess on the ramp, but it seemed my clothes sopped up most of it, and my shoe was able to contain the overflow. 
This seemed to please the baggage boys as they were laughing, most likely as happy, about not having to clean up their ramp. After spreading more oil everywhere from my hand and arm, I was able to get the filler plug back in. Then somehow got the cow closed and headed back up the stairs. I got even with the baggage boys, though, as each step of my right foot left a large area of oil they had to clean. This did not seem to upset them very much, however, as they continued to laugh. Upon entering the cockpit, I noticed that Chuck seemed sincerely concerned about my sorry state of affairs and only slid his seat a little to the left as I sat down. Bob Cook had the same humorous manner as the baggage boys, so I guess he was not too worried about the ramp. I must have gotten enough oil in it, though, as all was fine on the flight to Newark. Could not say that same that same for my right shoe, though. Wonder if I could fill out a NASA report. Well, Captain Jim is with us, and uh, as I mentioned before, and we'll hear his comments about that story, which he says was 99 and 9 tenths true. And so we'll hear the other 1 tenth of 1% of the story after we finish our next two poems. They should be quickly, and then we'll uh, get Captain Jim to tell us all about what really happened. One of these was submitted, one of these poems was submitted by the much-respected Captain John Halliburton, by the way, the first selected for the Hall of Fame of REPA. He was an Eastern Vice President of Flight Operations back in the Captain Eddie days of Eastern. I think you'll enjoy his imagination and perhaps Someone he knew or his own feelings in his early days may be been the cause of this poem. God knows most co-pilots have had similar feelings before they became El Supremo. This poem, written by very senior Captain John Halliburton, Director of Flight Operations of Eastern back in the Captain Eddie Rickenbacker days was printed in repartee and it goes like this. The title, Co-Pilot Daniel O'Toole. Now the best of the yarns told in hedge-hopping barns by the boys of the barnstorming school is Eastern's own story of the rise to glory of co-pilot Daniel O'Toole. Now, Daniel O'Toole was a crop-dusting fool before he came with the great silver fleet, till one day he tried, with insecticide, to skywright at 25 feet. Right after the crash, with the $12 cash that he got from his cracked-up job, he saw Uncle Sid and put it in his bed to become one of our motley mob. After nearly a year of just raising the gear, Dan thought he had gotten his fill. So hunting for fun, he applied for the run, flying cargo down south to Brazil. And although he tried to swallow his pride by making a landing or two, to fly straight and level was all the poor devil was ever permitted to do. 
Now, Dan began yearning for the twisting and turning and stunts of his crop dusting days. So he vowed, setting forth before coming north, he would damn well be changing his ways. Now, the ride to Belem was both grisly and grim, and the captain was surly and rude, becoming irate when Dan wouldn't fly straight and would lose 15 feet altitude. So at Zaza's that night, after picking a fight with some bum from the Merchant Marine, our co-pilot Dan boozed up a plan for the damnedest flight man's ever seen. Next morning, he reeled out onto the field, all printed and primed for the trip to Natal, still on a binge and carrying a syringe full of sodium amatol. As the captain leaned over to pull the latch from the floor, Dan took aim and let fly. And although it was dark, the syringe found its mark, and the captain passed out with a sigh. With three burps and a grin, Dan quickly jumped in where the captain would sit, were he there, and with a lap full of bottles and wide-open throttles, went roaring out into the air. He told the radio man to file a flight plan with the ATC, or Supreme Court, for a C-47 headed towards heaven with hell as an alternate port. With a burbling boop, he pulled the ship in a loop, then in a fancy chandel. Then he dived it on down 30 feet from the ground and rolled like a bat out of hell. He, ups he upset a boat just to see if it would float and whether the natives could swim, then dived into battle with 10,000 cattle that were grazing just north of Belem. He let down the gear and burbled a cheer as he snatched monkeys from out of the trees, then climbed with full power for almost an hour to watch them all curl up and freeze. The mountains he skirted while flying inverted were ragged, rugged, and half a mile high. 10,000 feet drops with full feathered props sent the wind and the clouds whistling by. He head-shopped Amiza to land Fortaleza for two donkeys and a cargo of booze. Then singing Hosanna, he headed for Guiana, or any damn place he might choose. He drank two pints of gin and a fairy turned spin, pulling out 20 feet from the ground. And when his stomach would burn and Emmelman turn, was the best thing to do, he found. Now the captain, about five, began to revive and bellowed at Dan with a roar. So Dan grabbed the chute, and with one last parting boot hoot, he flung himself out of the door. Now the captain's surprise when he opened his eyes was something about which to sing, Inside were two donkeys, while six frozen monkeys clung tight to the tip of the wing. 
As for our Dan, not a single white man has seen hide nor hair of him still. But there's a native who tells of the white god who dwells way back in the wilds of Belem. What's more, it is claimed that he landed unnamed like some bird with a terrible thirst and with whiskey and bribes became head of their tribes, King, King Daniel O'Toole the first. And although it's odd he's worshipped as God with a future that's certain and long, for it is felt that his breath will bring certain death and that they may not be so wrong. He goes on wild toots with distilled native fruits and maintains a nice rosy glow and casts magic spells with the brew that they say smells like the spore of a wild buffalo. Now some think O'Toole was a headstrong young fool and bear for him only a grudge. But some of us guys think perhaps he was wise. We'll leave that for you folks to judge. Wow. What an imagination Captain John Halliburton had to to have uh, pulled that poem off. Uh, I'm going to forego the next poem and leave it for next week. And uh, it was called Empty Tanks because I'm uh, wanting to get to uh, our guest that are our host also on Monday night. But we do have Captain uh, Jim Holder. Unfortunately, uh, I'd like to talk with Captain Dan O'Toole. But uh, Jim, I'm going to open your microphone. You're going to tell me what you thought of the gooseneck oiler. Okay, uh, got it open. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I'd rather. All the mic. By the way, all the microphones are all open. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Well, I'm, I've said made a statement that that story about the gooseneck oiler is 99.9 percent .9 true, and uh, and I'll stick by that. But there's one little thing that's put in there that uh, I'm sure that when I pointed out to. Uh, the guys on the show with me, uh, Mike Scott and Chuck, they know better. I've talked about when I got up there and got ready to put it all in there, I wrapped my leg around the my left leg around the ladder, and I grabbed a hold of a spark plug and lifted it up. Well, the electric doesn't have spark plugs. It's got Ignited. igniters. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't have a spark plug, and I've sat back for these 25 years since I wrote that, waiting for somebody to call me up and say, hey, you idiot. The Electra didn't have spark plugs. It's a turboprop. A jet engine hooked up to propellers. But nobody yeah. has ever done that, and I'm really disappointed. So I'm going to put the, go on record today that that 1%, one-tenth of 1% is everything else is true except that. And I'm going to stick to that story. <laughs> and you got so, blue prop oil could... all over you. Oh, yeah. man, it was terrible. I had to throw the shoes away, literally. Uh, well, what did you do uh, for the rest of the trip? Did you Were you on a layover, or uh, were no, you coming home? No, we had a layover in Raleigh, and we went to Newark, and I had to get my logbook out. But I, I remember going into the en route 
I went back into the john and I took my shoes off. And it only went on my right shoe, not the left one. And uh, I stopped it out best I could do, and I squished around for the rest of the trip. I guess we probably ended up back in back in uh, Atlanta. No, I was facing Chicago then. That's right. We got back to Chicago, and I had to go out and didn't have any money, you know, second year of pay and buy a new pair of shoes. But uh, Chuck, Chuck Alton and Bob Cook, they just thought it was hilarious and uh, really got on my nerves when they kept laughing, to be honest with Any, you. <laughs> Anything like that happened to you, Mike, as far as being embarrassed like uh, Jim? Oh, I guess there's quite a few of them when you're trying to uh, uh, oil oil the engines when the uh, in the pouring ra- when the rain is going sideways in the wind when you used to have to reach in open up the access plate on the uh, on the JT8s and you had to reach in there with that uh, get that uh, get that can uh, on about a 45 degree angle before you stuck it in there, so it would reach the lip of the scoop, to, so the, the oil wouldn't go all down inside the cowling, and mm-hmm. it would it would blow all back out all over you. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I tell you, the uh, I don't ever remember them, but of course I wasn't in position to see all the time. But I think that almost 99 percent of the time they put oil in the prop, and I get on pop oil was very critical with that engine. If you lost prop oil, it would overspeed and all kind of bad things would happen. But I think that 99 times out of 100, they put it in through that plug that went in through the hole of the prop. And because uh, right. it was so much trouble to try to add it back there using this method where you had to take that plug out and just pour it in. But I guess I probably might be the only second officer on the pilot engineer i'm sorry i wasn't a second officer i wasn't a flight engineer i was a pilot engineer pfe and that was all because of the faa settling the strike you know and all that that if you were on the electric you were a pilot and when you don't want a flight engineer you were a pilot flight engineer pfe a lot of people thought it stood professional engineer but it wasn't and if he was on the jet you were a second officer and if you were on the DC-7, they kind of, you were a flight engineer, even though you were a pilot. It just got really complicated. You didn't know who the hell we, what we were back in those days, as long as they paid us a little stiff in. We were happy. Well, as you guys, as you guys know, they, uh, Electra had the Aero Products uh, propellers, which were made by General Motors. Mm-hmm. And they had that, uh, that blue, the oil was blue that used to go into there. And mm-hmm. then in, in the later days... They used to use that oil mixed with Aeroshell 7 to put in the uh, in the in the jack screws on the 727 flaps. Hmm. You might you might you oh. might remember that, but uh, <laughs> oh, that's a new one on me. The, yeah. the, the ball nuts for the flaps they used to use that to put that mixture in there, because this way here it would it would uh, it would keep the flaps from. The uh, from freeze from freezing up at any one particular time and causing any problems on the ball nut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know the electric's got some funny stories. Uh, maybe we ought to do an entire show on on the uh, Electra. But some of the things that I remember, first of all, never forget that's the first uh, engineer rating that I ever got, the turboprop uh, flight engineer rating, and uh, with the Eastern. And but uh, some of the things that I remember is so funny. 
was about the sinks of those four props. And it seems to me, Mike, that we had Ham Hamilton standards on that Electra. Um, no, we we all they were all Aero products on, on the okay, ones that we okay. had. The C one thirties, which has the same engine, those those guys had the Hamilton standards on them. The, the giveaway was the square tips on the props. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hamilton standard was round, and the uh, Hamilton standard had round round tips. And the, it, like huh. I said, the the Aero products were square. Well, we had square tips on ours. I remember that. Yeah, that's, but one that's of the, the things that I do remember was those four engines. And sometimes when they be, they uh, got out of sync, uh, 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 you know, and they were straining against each other, and you'd hear this terrible uh, unsynced prop noise. And uh, mm. we had one of those engines was what they call the master, the master light. That sank uh, the other one and two and four were synced to that to that number three engine, the best I can recall. But it was so funny when you'd have somebody to uh, or talk to someone about it, and you talk about that. It was called a beta light, I believe. Yeah, and, that's what uh, it was. It, yeah, and then it had a, a name that uh, stuck to it, and that was the Master Beta Light. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> All right, little, I wasn't gonna little say bit of comedy that, but... there. <laughs> well, it also had a gauge that measured the turbine inlet temperature. You remember that turbine engine temperature or turbine inlet temperature? Excuse me. The TIP. Yeah. TIP. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a story in Repartee about that. One of the pilots uh, was talking to. I guess uh, Miami Tech, and there was a gal on the line, and he was trying to define the problem they were having with it. And it was the <laughs> turbine inlet tech temperature. And she said, what? And he said, okay, T-I-T temperature or TIT <laughs> or something like that. But there was a good mm -hmm. story about that. I'll have to dig through uh, the uh, magazine, see if I can find that one. But like I say, there were lot of great stories. Someone says, well, if something breaks, just do a hard landing and everything corrects <laughs> itself. <laughs> everything goes to zero. <laughs> uh, great. Um, we got uh, Chuck Albright's with us. Now, Chuck, you never did get to do any maintenance work on the Electra, did you? Uh, he must be out the lunch. Is his mic open? Yeah, his mic's open, but uh, he must be out eating. He was telling me before show that he was eating some ice cream and and hey, can you hear me now? Wonderful, made <laughs> by Dorothy <laughs> okay. Gagnon. But uh, I, yeah. uh, I worked on the Electra. I remember one of the uh, time that they sent me out. The Electra used to leak fuel because it was a plank wing. You know, they used to caulk between the planks, and they would they would leak, and you'd have to go out there and re-caulk them. Or the worst thing was to do is you had to put this fire retardant um, putty around the exhaust um, uh, pipe, so to speak. It actually, was uh, an exhaust panel coming out over the wing there, and uh, you would so you could seal it all off, and that you would come out literally would soot all over you because uh, obviously of the 
the exhaust from them. What I wanted to ask Jim was, how did you safety wire the plug? Oh, I did not. <laughs> That's, uh, I know it's illegal, but, hell, I was glad to get it down and got it tight with that little wrench, you know. And I'm not even sure how tight I got it with that little six-inch baby wrench. Because I never heard you, you right. say you had a pair of safety wire pliers. Yeah, I know. And I had to break the safety wire, and I was thinking when I was breaking an iron, the hell am I going to put this on? Of course, I lost that piece of wire down there somewhere, and I just tightened it down best I could. And Chuck said, let's go. And we did. Yeah, if I remember, I instead of coming around the edge of the plug, a lot of times the guys would safety wire across the plug. Well, which, uh, I don't you know, I exactly. Yeah. Yep. How well, many? How well, many? We, uh, how we many flew with parts? It safety. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> how many parts of the cow did you remove, Jim? So you had the top and the bottom, and I opened them both. And when I wow. dropped the bottom one down, that's when the wrench fell out. I thought it was rung up in all of the pipes and wires and all that. And, and <laughs> when I dropped that bottom cow, kink there, my little wrench fell out. And I said, "Thank God." So, yeah, you got I, lucky that day. I did. <laughs> I'll tell you, we was about 30, 35 minutes late, and, uh, and uh, Chuck didn't even write me a compliment or any letter or anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get a free C3 pass, huh? I didn't get diddly squat out of it, except for you fair <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, it was a real tough airplane to work on, but the pilots liked it. Mechanics didn't like it too much. Yeah. yeah, it is a great airplane from a pilot's yeah. point. Uh, well, somebody told know, me yeah. one time that originally when they designed the airplane, it was only designed with two engines. And then when they put four engines on it, it was overpowered so much that that's why one of the things that uh, they attribute the panels on the wings, um, that the caulking was coming uh, loose, allowing fuel to come out. And because it was such an overpowered airplane, I don't know. What do you pilots think of it? Do you think it was so, a, well? I never heard about that caulking. That'd give me yeah. something else to worry about. But yeah. I never heard about that. <laughs> yeah, I will you never know, talk a lap boat. Of, you'd know about it. Yeah, one of our well, uh, one of our captains pulled a uh, circuit breaker to that uh, uh, gear warning light. Do you remember that going into Birmingham and landed with gear up? Do you remember oh, that? Oh, electric. No, yeah, on the Electra. That. Yeah, I, I remember the captain real well. He used to fly with him a lot uh, after that uh, incident. And uh, and I'll tell you later, I don't want to say anything because he was a fantastic uh, pilot and great friend. And uh, But, uh, yeah, that happened. They called it the Birmingham switch. Well, Have okay. you not ever heard of the Birmingham switch? I never heard that story. I got a, yeah. I got a trivia question for you. What yeah. other Lockheed airplane was that uh, electric engine put on? Well, yeah, Vega, Convair, Convair 580. A what? Oh, yeah. yeah Convair that's right. 580. No, that's, no, yeah, but that wasn't a Lockheed airplane. Oh, this that's was Lockheed right. airplane. This is a, you're going to be marvelous when I, I'm amazed when I tell you. They made, they put it on a Connie. They had a Connie with four electric engines on it. I've oh, my God. Wow! Yeah, and that's the only four-bladed Connie ever made. All the other engines were three-bladed props, but the Electra, yeah. the engine on the Electra was four-bladed, and uh, that's why that Connie it was the only one they ever did. 
it didn't work out too good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you learned something today, didn't you? Yes, you did. Yeah. Every, every day. <laughs> every day. I, I, I can still I remember the county when they had the last one parked in Miami. They were shipping it off to, uh, I guess, the Boneyard. It was the last Connie that Eastern owned. Well, you know, well, the last two fifty four. The newsletter that I put out, I had a picture of a Connie in it, and it's uh, said the Eastern's last ten forty nine uh, Connie, and that's in yeah. my, my newsletter. And I and I got that off the internet. And I assume it's right. There's one they kept and they flew around with parts and that kind of stuff. And it yeah. was said the last one. And it was painted in the blue and white paint job. Yes, aircraft 254. When they retired the Electra, when they retired the Electra, they had some props in the overhaul shop there. And they took one of the props or several of the props and they melted them down. And they made those little miniature about the size Letter of like cig- cig- cigarettes, about the size of cigarettes, and they made a miniature replica of that prop. I've got one. I've oh, got really? I got it. I think somebody sent it to me, and the remarks on that little mahogany uh, piece of wood that that prop is mounted on, like I say, Goodbye, the prop old itself prop. was. No, it says the last, uh, uh, last, made from the last. Prop on the Electra, and uh, mm. they gave it they gave it to a lot of people in maintenance, and I think somebody sent it to me. It must have, but uh, I've got that. And one of these days, I'll probably auction it off. Maybe there might be a million yeah. of those out there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, one last. You only get on the, the people from Eastern to bid on it. Yeah, Neil. One last comment. Uh, one last comment on the Electra. I don't know if I've ever told the story. Uh, to you guys, I may have. I know I've told it quite a few times about how we lost an engine going from uh, uh, Nashville to O'Hare one night, one snow-ridden night. And it's a lot more than just losing an engine. It's a hell of a story. And uh, I don't know if I would want to say the name of the captain, sort of like you in the other deal in Birmingham, Electric. Um, but this guy, what, what happened that night? Well, there's always uh, another program. Yeah, always <laughs> another program. So, I'll keep you in the dark on it, but uh, I've, I've told the story, but I can't remember if I've started on, on with Neil or not. No, I don't think I've heard that, so we'll, we'll ask you about that uh, on a future show. And it's a true story, 100% true. Yeah. Very good. Not 99.9%, right? Not 99.9%. It's 100% through every bit of it. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't tell anybody about it for a long time. You know, when I read your story a couple of times through, uh, by the way, did anybody hear the crows in the backyard or the birds chirping? Yes. Yes. I didn't hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I was so intrigued by the program, I couldn't hear the birds. Well, you you know, I had to stop in that Daniel O'Toole poem. It was such a long, three pages long, uh, Halliburton Mm -hmm. wrote wrote that poem. And uh, I think it was second page or third page, I was turning, and you heard that silence there, or me Mm -hmm. uh, messing around with the pages. Well, I took that to my 
sound editor, and I edited it out. Well, this was the second time that I selected the wrong one. <laughs> the the good one was I had it so perfect down you you could never tell there was a break in the audio. But of course I've done it before and I'll do it again probably again and again. Yeah. But um it's wonderful to be able to cut things out either uh printed or either sound nowadays. I don't know how they do it in video. I guess they can. Um but at any rate, uh, we got some great shows coming up. Dorothy, you want to talk about them? Uh, yes, I can give you that. Um, I didn't uh, realize I was going to do that, but here it is. <laughs> uh, we, ha- <laughs> we have episode 455 on Monday, Martina and the Challenge of the Return Flights, and that's going to be very interesting. So, folks, excuse me, folks, you really need to join us for that journey of Martina. Uh, the next one will be e- EAL Music, uh, and it's going to be the World War II Music with Oscar Brand, uh, followed by The Evolution of the Airplane Seat, another music uh, program the following week. And then we have Who is the Inventor Naming Aviation Patent Holder? So we have some real good ones coming up, and uh, folks, you need to be there. That's you, Neil. <laughs> okay, yeah, and don't forget, uh, every Thursday we come back with a couple of more stories and maybe a poem or two and some humor uh, in between. And uh, it's just fun to do a show like this when we can chat and, and hear some uh, great war stories as only the pilots of Eastern could tell it uh, in a great magazine repartee the retired Eastern Pilots Association's official magazine. Very well, it's been by the way. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun with you guys today. Thanks so much and I'm going to play a little out of here music and then we'll uh sign off. Our sign off music is playing in the background as you hear, so we'll see you again next week same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine retired Eastern Pilots. Remember the EAL radio show Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we bring you the best aviation stories of 2019. Uh, well, that we did that last week as Martine, as uh, Dorothy told us, we're, we're interviewing Martine Shores. So we'll see you then. So long to the Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. Thanks, guys. Okay. See you later. Okay. Good, Good night, gang. Good night. Good night. But you locked me out of your mind. Left me standing here behind. Silver. Shining in the sunlight, roaring engines headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away, leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight.
Thanks so much. Thanks, Neil. Jeez. It was really good. Good job. Good. Bye bye. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.